0: Hey, everyone. This is 80s wrestling fan Brian, and I'm here with another episode of Legendary Wrestling Figures. I'm super excited. I have a guest today. It is Evan Ginsberg. He is the producer of a documentary that was called Wrestling Then and Now from about 20 years ago. He's the associate producer of one of my favorite movies, The Wrestler, uh, with Mickey Rourke. He's also the associate producer of... a uh, a really cool documentary from about five years ago called 350 days. And uh, along with that, he's the senior editor of pro wrestling stories, which uh, I click on those links on Twitter all the time. They've got a great crew that, uh, that sends in stories to those guys. And and Evan is the senior editor there. So uh, love to welcome Evan. Now, how are you doing this evening, Evan?
1: I am good. I just uh, recovered from a, uh, co-op board meeting, and here I am. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm good. Well, I, I sincerely thank you for joining me. It's uh, super exciting to get to uh, to know you over this format and uh, to ask you some questions.
1: Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure.
0: Um, before I get into uh, some of those projects I just mentioned, I'm kind of wondering um What age were you when you started getting into wrestling? And uh, was it always in the Northeast? Like, did you grow up in the Northeast? And uh, how old were you when you started to uh, get interested in pro wrestling?
1: I am a lifelong New Yorker, as you can hear from my accent. (laughs) Brooklyn born. And on a rainy day in the early 1970s, I was bored out of my mind. This was pre-internet, pre-video games, pre-everything. And we had what was called the UHF dial, the mysterious UHF dial. And um, we had maybe, maybe 10 channels on the uh, regular TV. And like I said, I was bored. I was stuck in the house all day. So I'm, uh, I'm just going from one station to the other on UHF. And I get to Channel 47, which was a Spanish-language channel, and I see an Indian, an Indian getting pounded by some massive bohemoth, and it turns out it's Chief J. Strongbow. And I, I didn't even know what I was watching, you know, but I was yep. just hypnotized, hypnotized. And all of a sudden... Chief J. Strongbow starts doing this herky-jerky uh, war dance. <laughs> and, you know, he, he makes this unbelievable comeback. This is 10 years before Hulk Hogan's comebacks. And uh, he pins the guy who had like 100 pounds on him. And I, I just sat there like like in awe. These, these were like superheroes and supervillains. And as a kid, I was a total mock. And I, I made a mental note, when was this show on? And I started watching every week. And at that time, Pedro Morales was the uh, WWF world champion. And uh, at Madison Square Garden, you were not allowed to go until you were 14 years old. Because it was, it was bloody and it was violent. And uh, I go on... My very first match was June 24th, 1974. And I walk into Madison Square Garden with my dad, of course, because I was still a kid. And um, we had a black and white TV. And I walk into Madison Square Garden. And the first thought that I had was, wow, it's in color. It's in color. (laughs) And... Um, of all people of all people who who is opening the show jose gonzalez who ultimately would kill bruiser brody but yeah uh, ironically but uh, on that show on that show the main event was bruno sammartino and chief j strongbow against nikolai volkov and fred blassie and the co-feature was the valiant brothers against dean ho and tony Garea. And there were a ton of other legends on there. Killer Kowalski, you know, and, you know, I I was just in awe. I was just like starstruck. And uh, my dad was a New York City taxi driver and uh, he never broke 25 grand, you know, a year. And it was a very blue collar thing back then. And at that point, Bruno was the world champion. And um you know, we had the Italian strongman Bruno. We had the Polish, pa- the Polish strongman Ivan Putsky. It was very blue collar and ethnic. Dominic Dinucci, Davy et etc. So on. You know, very ethnic. They wanted to appeal to every ethnic group, and and New York has always been multicultural. And um, you know, total mock, and just loved it. And what Younger fans today, many don't understand. They'll say, oh, you know, Bruno and Pedro and Strongbow, they were just punching and kicking. But we thought it was real. And every punch and kick, we felt it. You know, they they were kicking us. That was the school bully kicking us and well, we, plus we,
0: when you when you saw a fight that's what a fight would look like you know? it was punching and kicking and you wouldn't see it but, you know so
1: yeah and what they also don't understand is they had charisma off the charts bruno would walk in you know in a pair of tights and the building would shake there there was no you know, there was no entrance music there was no pyro there was no nothing it was a guy with unbelievable charisma in a plain black pair of tights. And pretty much, you know, it was magic. It was just magic. And a few years later, the quote unquote, big kids, the big kids were telling me it's fake, it's fake. And then you started to hear the rumors. Billy Graham's gonna beat Bruno superstar Billy Graham on april 30th 1977 in baltimore and it's exactly what happened it's exactly what happened so then you then you're looking at it you know in a different way okay it's not real but it's still magic it's still magic you know if if you're watching a movie you know during that era You know, Clint Eastwood really wasn't shooting the guy. Charles Bronson really wasn't shooting the guy. There was that suspension of disbelief. And I looked at it very differently, but I still loved it. I still loved it. And um, that's a long-winded way of answering your question. When and how did I discover pro wrestling?
0: No, that was a great answer. I loved it. And and if if I was listening correctly, I'm guessing you were... Um, probably around fifth grade when you when you found it on the television maybe 11 maybe 10 um, years old probably probably 11 or 12. Yeah so, I, would
1: say, I would say that's exactly right and at age 14 I um, went to my first garden card and um, right after that the maniac John Tolos wrestled Bruno at the garden and we had The California L.A. TV tapings in New York and we had the Florida TV tapings in New York. And Vince McMahon Sr. was well aware that these were big stars. And all of a sudden there's John Tolis from California wrestling Bruno. And this was a huge deal. And um, John Tolis is one of these guys who uh, wrestling hasn't been kind to because his career peaked. 10 years before WrestleMania and the rock and wrestling connection. And there's not a lot of footage of him, but those that grew up on John Tolos realize he was one of the greatest heels of all time. And Tolos, yeah, guess, uh,
0: my age might only remember him if they remember at all, which uh, again, I was born in uh, july of 74 so basically 17 18 days after you went to your first card when the valiant brothers were uh valiant brothers were the tag champs that's when i was born and so guys my age if they know the name john tolos they probably think of the coach who was a very brief manager in wwf for uh oh i want to say the beverly brothers and uh and he was in and out, but we don't remember the guy I've seen in magazines with, uh, you know, a snake around his shoulders yeah, and the, the yeah, brilliant villain that, uh, that you're to- talking about. So John
1: Tolis was one of the great talkers, great promo guys in the history of wrestling. Vince McMahon puts a whistle in his mouth and doesn't let him talk. So, you All know, right. Vince, Vince. You know, made a lot of big stars and neutered a lot of great stars. And Tolas was one of the guys he had. He just, you know, wasted, squandered. Herb Abrams used them better as a uh, manager in UWF. Believe it or not, and uh, you know, and Tolas basically wrestled until the mid to late '80s, and you know, eventually, you know, retired. His body gave out on him. Tolas um, did a um, interview where he said i was wrestling for the awa it was a snowstorm i was on the undercard i was 54 years old or whatever and he goes this is it this is it i'm going back to sunny california and he retired and Mm -hmm. uh i'm working i'm actually working on a book on his life because uh not not because it's going to sell a million copies but because i just think he deserves his due. Cause, uh, there's many guys. I mean, Bobby Duncan in, in WWWF, uh, Waldo Von Erich, Spiro Sario, just great, great guys who, you know, like I said, came before the, uh, the explosion, the Hulkamania rock and wrestling explosion. And, uh, people just don't know what huge stars they were. And, uh, headlined around the world in madison square garden and um it it's it's a shame that some of these people like the young the kids don't even know who they are you know they don't even know them and it's uh it's really unfair history isn't always fair
0: well i want to uh thank you because in all of your projects you're able to bring forth These uh, these sides of wrestling and these stories that deserve to be told, but uh, unfortunately aren't. And so, in 350 days, you've got a behind-the-scenes look with uh, many who have passed just in the five years since it came out, Um, and you've got these uh, this flip side that people just don't think about when they're watching, when they watch the guys on TV, of how much sacrifice all these uh, legendary performers, how much sacrifice they put themselves through and their families through in order to entertain all of us as, uh, as fans. And sure, they got fame and they had fortune, but the fame and the... Well, the fortune is fleeting. And as you're saying now, you know, the fame is fleeting as well. So... Uh, well, let me,
1: let me just say one thing about that. Um, these guys, many of these legends would be a friends of mine. And for many of them... The, the fortune part of it was an absolute myth. The uh, Valiant brothers were the number one tag team in the world in the uh, mid to late 70s. I mean, they were tag champs pretty much everywhere, headlined in Japan, etc. cetera, so on. Johnny Valiant told me he never broke 100 grand in his entire wrestling career. And you're on the road 300 plus days a year. And uh, you're sending money back home and you have your road expenses and your taxes and et cetera, so on. And it's pretty much a myth um, that these guys all made you know, great money. By the Hokomania era, guys like Nikolai were pulling in 400 grand a year, which is a lot of money for that time. But but also understand that if you do the math. You're headlining arenas in the co-feature or high on the card if you're on top like Nikolai was with the Iron Sheik in the 80s. And, um, you know, if you're wrestling over 300 dates a year and you're making 400 grand, it's not a windfall. (laughs) You know, do the math. It's not a windfall. And, and they
0: still, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but they still had to cover the expense of their hotel, their food, their oh
1: yeah. oh, uh, yeah. their
0: gas money.
1: Yeah, so um, three meals a day and uh, everything else that goes along with traveling from town to town, night after night after night. Nikolai told me, he was a very good friend. Nikolai told me that one time he was so exhausted, he fell asleep with his eyes open. He didn't know that he didn't know that was humanly possible. <laughs> That's how exhausted he was, you know. And uh, so the idea that they were all millionaires and, and the the fanboy perpetrated myth that they all quote all pissed it away on wine, women, and song is ridiculous. Ridiculous.
0: Especially with Nikolai, who you can probably tell me stories about. Didn't he have his hot plate that he would take everywhere and cook in the room? And then he, you know, he was very—he uh, uh, was smart about saving his money. Um, I, I, I
1: you know, I, I, I actually roomed with Nikolai several times over the years, where we would share a room. Why? Yeah. <laughs> because he would be like Evan. You know, I, I can't room with the sheik anymore. <laughs> you know, yeah. he, he's too wild. I, I want to get to bed early, wake up early in the morning and, you know, work the convention, you know, work, work the uh, indie show, whatever the case may be. And uh, Nikolai would wake up at the crack of dawn and he had these old school wooden blocks that he carved in the old country. And he would do hundreds and hundreds of pushups first wow. thing in the morning. And uh, so one day we're in the room and, you know, you always have time to kill. And he goes, Evan, let's arm wrestle. <laughs> and I'm like, OK. And I look, so for, for the viewers, who, for the listeners who obviously don't know, I, I'm six to, you know, 220 or so. I'm not a 98 pound weakling. I'm in the gym all the time. I start to arm wrestle Nikolai. I could not move the man one inch, not one inch. <laughs> He used, to, he used to squeeze fruit on TV and make it explode in his bare hands. That's how powerful he was. I mean, you can't imagine how strong this man was. And when he died at 71 years old, one, I was devastated. But two, just shocked, shocked, because he was a health food nut. He took care of himself. He exercised. But again, again... What people forget is when you're on the road, 300 plus days a year, and that's how we got the title "350 Days" because guys like Ric Flair were on the road 350 days a year. Yeah, um, Bret Hart told us 330. Um, Greg Valentine told us 320 days approximately, so it was not an exaggeration by any by any means. The title of our documentary, and Nikolai's in that, by the way. So, yes, yeah. So um, you're, you're you're wrestling in smoke filled arenas in the '70s, and you know you're, you're flying from one time zone to another, travel endlessly traveling. Uh, it's just not a, a, a lifestyle conducive to longevity. Lanny yeah, Powell yeah. was a dear friend of mine. Yeah. Also, worked out. Exercised regularly, took care of himself, ate healthy. Guy, guy comes into New York earlier this year, goes to a Broadway show. You see him smiling outside the show on Facebook. There's a photo of him. He goes to sleep and he dies. Just goes to sleep and dies. You know, okay. you don't, you don't realize the toll that that business has on you. You're not meant to be on the road endlessly. Endlessly. It's just not a healthy lifestyle, even the ones who take care of themselves. So when you see a wrestler that actually lives into his 80s or 90s, it's the exception to the rule there, there's a mile long, you know, trail of dead wrestlers, you know, dying before their time in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, a mile long trail of wrestlers and even if you look at um 350 days i off the top of my head about 15 of our stars are gone at this point the movie came out about five years ago billy gray yep. just died paul orndorff george yep. Steele, uh, larry sharp the wolfman I, I could just go up and down the line in that movie george yeah,
0: ox baker
1: ox baker i mean you know there's that there, i don't want to bore your your listeners but about 15 of the wrestlers are gone. It's just, it's it's a, it's a very, very hard road. It's a hard road.
0: Well, that's another reason I, I would thank you is that just getting that documentary done where you're able to get so many, uh, interviews with these guys before they passed, it's just valuable to fans like me and other fans who wouldn't have had a chance to hear from some of these guys, if guys like you hadn't been, uh, behind making making projects like this happen so thank you
1: <laughs> yeah um we have a documentary wrestling then and now which i which i made in 2002 directed mm-hmm. director Dwayne walker um i'm more the uh, on the production side of it but um yeah we you know with with streaming now all of a sudden it's on tubi and plex and I'm watching this, and it's like half my friends in there are dead. It, it, you know, it's sobering. It's Killer Kowalski, Nikolai, Don Dr. Death Arnold, who was a huge star. But again, his career peaked in the in the 50s, 60s, 70s. So fans today just don't know him. But he was a main event guy. Um, yeah, so it's imp- to me, it's important to tell their stories and to preserve, you know, these stories f- for posterity. I mean, the average, the average filmmaker is not chasing around the Wolfman with a camera, you know, you know, we did, we did. So, uh, for 350 days. And, uh, even, even when we did the wrestler, we wanted it to ring true. And, uh, Aronofsky, I took Aronofsky basically every weekend for six months, to wrestling events and he picked their brains and he really got a he was a he was a casual 80s hulkamania era fan aronofsky's 50 ish now so um he was not an expert on wrestling but he he got this screenplay and it was an extraordinary screenplay and uh he saw he saw the value in it and um I, th- I think he he really captured the dark side of pro wrestling in the wrestler
0: well yeah it's like you said with, with the uh, fortune you know you see the main character randy the ram in uh, you know living in a in a trailer park and locked out of his trailer you know because he can't pay his rent so even though he is uh, a a hero to thousands if not millions he's still at the end of his career, he's not, uh, he's not living large. He's living uh, check to check, working uh, at the conventions to do signings. It's, it's, a, it's a really great story for anybody who hasn't seen it. It's, um, and I love that guys like Roddy Piper fully endorsed it as telling a, a true um, and real story about the business. It, uh, it really lends credit to what you guys put together for, for uh, somebody like Roddy to uh, put his stamp of approval on the finished product.
1: Well, I'll tell you the backstory on that autograph scene. Um, I took Darren and um, the executive producer, the money guy Scott Franklin, and the screenwriter, um, and others in the crew to a convention, and basically it was the WWE Hall of Fame. It was Nikolai, Sheik, Albano, Mula, May Young, Tony Atlas, etc., and. We're at this convention, and Aronofsky, who, who, who's a legitimately decent guy, his mom was a schoolteacher, he's not a rich kid born with a silver spoon, he's a good-hearted guy, he says, Evan, where is everybody? Where is everybody? There's nobody there. It was, there was like 30 fans and 20 wrestlers. It was grim, grim. And it was so bad that Iron Sheik's head was down on the table sleeping okay so the screen the screenwriter is there and he actually goes back and adds the scene to the screenplay how do i know this because i was helping them you know with the wrestling parts in the screenplay you know trying to make it as authentic as possible.
0: Let me interrupt you. This leads to a question I had to ask you. And before you get there, there's a part where Randy signs an autograph and the and the guy says his name is Evan and he, he asks him how to spell it. And, you know, it's E-V-A-N. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, is that actually, is that Evan Ginsberg that's doing that scene? So I just uh, had I'll to t- I'll, tell I'll tell you that story. I'll tell
1: you that story. So we add, we, we add the, uh, Autograph scene to the screenplay, and um, we get to the uh, actual shoot that day, and um, Aronofsky has all the tables set up, and uh, the only actual wrestlers that were there that day was Johnny Valiant, whose hair was not dyed, so he didn't look like Johnny Valiant and Manny Yarborough, the 800 pound sumo. He was a UFC guy. He was a friend of mine. He's gone now too. So, um, so I'm on set just, you know, watching, hanging out. And, uh, all of a sudden, Darren gets like this smirk. He goes, Evan, come here. And I go, yeah. And he goes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to walk around to all the tables, walk up to Mickey last, ask him for an autograph and a Polaroid. Okay. So so Mickey walks over, whispers in my ear. He goes, just improv it. Like he thinks I'm an actor. Okay. I've never (laughs) acted in my life. So, so, I do exactly what they tell me to do. Now, mind you, there's probably 125 people there, these giant cameras in your face, and I've never done this before. So the whole time I'm I'm making my way over to Mickey, I'm thinking, what am I going to say? Because, you know, this was not in the script. So I walk up to him and and I'm thinking, what would I say to any legendary wrestler? And I go... I loved you as a kid. I saw you at the garden, Madison Square Garden. Can I have your autograph? And he looks at me, and he goes, what's your name? And I pause for a second, and I'm like, okay, how am I gonna answer this? So I just go, Evan. <laughs> it's the first thing that popped in my head. And he goes, how do you spell that? All right, so Johnny Valiant, who was one of the extras in that scene, He says to me, you know, your hand was shaking while you were doing that. I go, yeah, I was nervous. (laughs) You know, I'd never done anything like that before. So we're sitting at the New York Film Festival at Lincoln Center. 2,300 people sold out. Okay, $40 a ticket. And I'm sitting with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and I don't know if I made the cut in this movie. I had no idea. So all of a sudden, I come on the screen. and She's looking at me. She's looking at the screen. She's looking at me. She goes, that's you. That's you. (laughs) The whole thing is just surreal, really surreal. And a buddy of mine who's not a wrestling fan, but a film fan, he said to me, quote, he said, that was Aronofsky's gift to you. That was his gift to you.
0: That's, that's, that, so...
1: that's your little piece of immortality because that movie will be seen forever. Because Mickey's performance is one of the greatest performances ever set to film. He won the Golden Globe, best actor in the world for that role. And he should have won the Oscar. He should have won the Oscar. But, you know, the Academy Award always likes the... Um, you know, socially aware, you know, he lost the show. They short- like the real
0: life a lot of times. Like Sean Penn was playing Harvey Milk, so they went with him. But, man, that role was so, like, I can't think of a better performance than, uh, than like you say, than, than Mickey Rourke as the wrestler. It was phenomenal,
1: as I you sat, said. I sat, thank you, I sat at the, um, at, at various film festivals, but the first Film Festival. I saw that was at the New York Film Festival, as I was saying. And in the scene where he goes, I'm just a broken down piece of meat. I look mm-hmm. around and everybody's crying. Everybody's mm-hmm. crying. And I, we had spent seven years off and on working on this film. And I said, wow, you know, it works. It works. You can't fake crying, you know. And mm-hmm. um, am I allowed to curse on your show? Sure. So at the after party, which was in this nice New York club, Darren does this little speech and it's from the heart. It's not written. He just, it's just talking to a bunch of us. And he says, quote, I don't know what the fuck we have, but we have something that's his exact words. I'm not paraphrasing. And once he said that I knew because, because he's a genius If you saw Requiem for a Dream or a you know, even The Whale. I mean, talk about great performances. Brendan Fraser in The Whale, Aronofsky's last film. Brendan Fraser was so devastating in this movie. At the end of the movie, uh, uh, no spoilers, at the end of the movie, nobody could move. The credits were over. Nobody could move everybody was so drained. We just sat there. We just sat there. And I, I, it's very rare to experience anything like that in a movie theater. So, you know, Aronofsky's a genius and I'm not saying this just cause I worked with them. Um, you know, his filmography speaks for himself. I mean, it's, it's an amazing body of work. And, um, I'll tell you another quick story. Um, the wrestler was shot on six million dollars. I know because I was at the various funding uh, meetings. We wanted eighteen million dollars. So most most of those wrestling sequences in the movie, those were real wrestling fans. This was these were not extras for the most part. Okay, yeah. so. So we would be like interrupting a Ring of Honor show, and they were like getting pissed because they just wanted to see the wrestling. So at one point, Aronofsky actually gets in the ring and, and says, "Guys, guys, we're gonna do good by you. Just, just let us, you know, you know, get our stuff in, you know, get, you know." So it was like guerrilla filmmaking. We had one, two, three shots, and that was it. We, we, we weren't doing twenty takes. They didn't want us there. It was wild. The whole experience. It was, it was one of the great experiences of my life and uh, very proud of it. And nobody got rich from it. It was a, a low-budget indie film. But um, 100 years from now, people will be watching that film for Mickey's performance. And I say, I say this all the time. You don't have to be a wrestling fan to appreciate the wrestler. You don't have to be a boxing fan to appreciate Rocky. You know, a good film is a good film. There's 15 or so minutes of wrestling in The Wrestler. There's 15 or so minutes of boxing in Rocky. You know, it's about it's about the movie. It's not about the action sequences.
0: Well, it's it's not even um, – it goes further than the wrestling part of the movie and even goes further than Mickey's performance at uh, Marissa Tomei as uh, outstanding – Evan Rachel Wood as as uh, Mickey's daughter again outstanding, oh, and really even great. his uh, his fellow wrestlers in their performance, in their performances they come across as so real and so um, just a, as far as a story of the human condition, it's an outstanding film that I can't say enough good things about. And uh, and yeah, you and everybody involved with that should just um, feel so proud of being a part of that film because it really is something special.
1: Thank you. Um, it's from the heart. Um, at one point, we could not get the funding we needed, and, and Aronofsky is considering considering the Cage. And um, he's like, Evan, we're going to go meet Nick Cage. Um, he says, you be the point, man. Uh, meet him in the garage at, at Hammerstein Ballroom, where Ring of Honor is... Uh, having a show, just, just get them. You have to remember, this is 2006, 2007. Cause uh, the movie itself came out in 2008 and Nick Cage was a huge, huge star at that time. He's like, meet him, meet him in the parking garage, just get him backstage, you know, without any paparazzi, without any drama. You know, I knew the ring of honor guys, Carrie Silken and everybody. So I, I said to him, You know, do me a favor. We just got to get him in quick. So I meet him in the parking garage. And for like 10 seconds, I'm like marking out because he's like one of the biggest movie stars in the world at that point. And then for whatever reason, I I just glance at his shoes. And I'm like, he's just another guy in a pair of shoes and jeans who breathes the same air we all do. You know? And... uh, He happened to be like just super, super down to earth, like a really super nice guy. And I'll never forget, we're watching Ring of Honor and he says to me, is this real, like UFC? (laughs) (laughs) He he didn't even know what he was watching. And um, so after, it was a great evening, super nice guy, you know, and um, so... I'm sitting with with Darren after the fact, a couple of days later, and and Darren goes, "Evan, you know, Nick Cage is bigger box office, but but Mickey's the right guy. Mickey's the right guy." And that's
0: thousand percent. Yeah, that's
1: that's an artist talking. That's not a business... You know, the business decision is you get the bigger movie star who's going to draw more money. But, but Darren is an artist, first and foremost. And, um, yeah, so uh, the rest is history. And, um, yeah, very proud of it. And, ironically, the uh, executive producer of 350 Days is also named Darren, Darren Antola. And I meet with him. And uh, he's like, I want you to do for this documentary what you did for The Wrestler you know, um, basically be the wrestling guy, get us whatever we need. And at first I'm like, Darren, um, I'm never going to top the wrestler. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't even think I want to do another wrestling project to be honest. And I'm talking to him and he loved everything I loved. He's like, oh my God, how great was Don Morocco in the eighties? How great was Jimmy Snooker? How great was Piper? <laughs> you know? And I'm like, this guy sounds like me, you know? Yeah. It's, it's like he got he 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 got it. He got it. He, he so the more I the more I liked this guy, you know, I'm, I'm like, I think it would be a great experience working with him also. And uh, I but I said, Darren, I said, don't do the typical. You know, this is a guy with his with with his uh, you know room full of wrestling merch. I said, let these guys, let the wrestlers really, really tell their stories, really pour their hearts out. Let them make people understand what was it like—the good, the bad, and ugly of being on the road endlessly, endlessly. So, for example, wrestlers hate the word "fake." Why they'll go, "My three divorces weren't fake, my uh, hip replacement wasn't fake. My kids not talking to me wasn't fake. My missing my kid's birth, graduation, wedding wasn't fake, you know,
0: and one hundred percent yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, and this is what people don't understand and uh you know, um, when I every day on social media, you'll see you'll see these fa- these fan pages that are meant meant to honor these guys, and they'll just pick a name out of a hat and they'll go, Roddy Piper was overrated, Andre the Giant was overrated, Bruno Sammartino was overrated, and I'm like, kid, you aren't there. You have no idea what you're talking about. You have no idea. Yep. Because yep. you didn't see these guys in their prime, and you don't even understand how great they were, the charisma they had, you know, uh, the sacrifices they made, and um, you know, I uh, I have a love hate relationship with everything wrestling because there, there's a real dark and ugly side to it, and um, like Randy the Ram, um, a lot of these guys did not end up well. They ended up uh you know that bounces at a bar that bounces at a strip club they're janitors you know they're there you know they, a lot of these guys did not have degrees they were blue-collar guys and you know and on top of it there's no health insurance there's no 401ks there's no pensions which is absolutely ruthless they're not your employees they're independent contractors but they work for you 300 plus days a year? How disgraceful a billion dollar industry, a billion dollar corporation like WWE, that a superstar Billy Graham, that a bushwhacker Butch on their deathbeds had to worry about money and paying hospital bills and funerals, how disgraceful.
0: You're So so right. Let me, um, if it's all right, let me continue this discussion on the next episode, and uh, uh, and which we will definitely do if you're okay with that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm a, I'm a night owl. I, I'll go as long as you need.
0: Awesome. So, um, on the end of this episode, I know you're not a big action figure guy, but if you look at those. Uh, if you looked a little bit at those pictures, if you were going to give a star rating to John Studd and everybody's got their own way that they want to rate them. Some guys are like, how well could I play with this action figure? Some guys are like, how, uh, how much did this guy's action figure look like the wrestler himself? Um, if you were on whatever basis you want to do it, we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but how many stars out of five would you give John Studd's LJN action figure? And it could be like 2.9 or 3.5 or just straight two or straight five or whatever. Out, out of
1: a five-star rating? Yes, sir. Yeah, sure, sure, no problem. So um, as far as the John Studd figure, um, I give it a four, a four out of five. I would think the vast amount of wrestling fans of that era would recognize him. I think it captures his likeness. Um, He has a fierce look, and he was a a great heel. I would say a four out of five. I remember John Studd much earlier as first Chuck O'Connor and later as one of the executioners, WWWF tag champs, with Killer Kowalski, and I saw John Studd versus Andre at the Garden. I saw Studd versus Hogan at the Garden. And I look at this figure, and I, I think it captures him. So uh, I think they did a good job. And I And again, what's interesting to me is he was one of the sweetest guys in the world. He was a super nice guy. He died very young in his late 40s. And um, it was very sad because anybody that knew him liked him, and, you know. But as a great heel, he looks the part with the, with this action figure. He has that menacing look. If you look at Hillbilly Jim, he has a happy look on his face, you know. <laughs> and you know, and I think also, I don't think anybody. I think it. I think Hillbilly Jim is even a closer likeness. I would give this a, a four point five. You you look at this and you just go Hillbilly Jim. There's no there's no doubt whatsoever. You know. Nice,
0: nice. Yeah, we can knock. We'll knock them both out right now. A four for John Stud. A four point five for Hillbilly Jim. Did you uh, Did you ever um, get to meet? Well, you said you met John Studd and what a nice guy he was. Um, I'm guessing Hillbilly Jim was also a very, very nice guy.
1: I I didn't meet Hillbilly Jim, but I interviewed him on uh, my old podcast. And um, just super down to earth, regular guy, humble. That whole country boy thing is legit. I mean, except he's a very sharp, wealthy guy. (laughs) You know, he's one of the few that you know, really invested and did well with the money he made during his limited, you know, run at the top, you know, he, he saved his money. He, he he's a very successful, shop guy. So the, the down home country boy thing is legit, but he's, he's a businessman on top of it. And, uh, just very gracious, friendly, humble, likable. The word, the word would be likable, and uh, he's one of the few guys in wrestling where they're always beefing. You know, he's one of the few guys everybody likes him. I never heard a bad word about him. And very
0: cool.
1: Speaking of which, speaking of which, yeah, Nikolai, who was a dear, dear friend of mine. Um, Nikolai, when he died um, at age 71, um, Bret Hart said publicly, quote, Nikolai Volkoff was the nicest man I ever met in pro wrestling. Mm, Bret Hart met everybody, Bret Hart knew everybody. So yeah, and when my mother died, Nikolai called my house, Nikolai Mm. Nikolai had met my mother. I mean, he was just a good human being, and Nikola, and yes, the action figure captures him at a certain point in his, you know, career, you know, mid-80s, um, so I would also say 4.5. I don't think you would look at him and go, Boris Sukov. <laughs> you know, it looks like Nikolai. It really does look like Nikolai. Uh, Definitely. Yeah, I think they captured it, and he has the menacing scowl, which is, again, ironic because it's it's interesting you picked these three because these were three of the nicest guys in wrestling. And two of them, for the most part, were heels throughout the yeah. majority of their careers. And Nikolai would qualify as one of, without a doubt, the top 10 foreign heels of all time. If people just remember him for the comedy stuff later in his career, like when, when Ted DiBiase picked him off the street, they didn't see the fierce, fierce Nikolai of the 1970s when he was headlining the garden and the entire circuit against Bruno. He went to a one hour draw with Bruno. Okay. This is how huge a star he was. And, uh, When he was tag teaming with the Iron Sheik, he said to me he would be put in the middle of the card because they would have to sneak him and the Sheik out because the fans would have murdered them if they saw them outside the arena at this point in their careers. So they would actually be put in ambulances, hidden and driven out of Madison Square Garden, like the fifth match on the card instead of the eighth or ninth at the end because it was dangerous for them it was absolutely dangerous different different mentality the fans believed for the most part and they, they wanted to kill him in the sheik you know crazy yeah. crazy
0: when did uh when did your mom pass
1: uh, my mom passed in 2016
0: i lost mine in uh, 2013 so i i know what you, how horrible it is to lose your mom and how uh, uh, the pain never really goes away. It's just a little, a little different. So
1: yeah, the the myth, the myth that um, time heals all wounds. Um, time softens all wounds, but it, you know, it's still your mother. It's still your father. And and since we're on this subject, let me say that when I look back at going to wrestling in the nineteen seventies. You know, my father died in 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you look at it as some of the greatest nights of your life because it was something I did with my dad, somebody else did with their grandfather, their uncle, their mom, whoever it was, you know, and decades later, they're gone. They're gone. And, you know, re- wrestling, you know, whether it's... <laughs> you know, the fact that it's a work is irrelevant. It's some of the best nights you ever had. You were with beloved friends and family who are no longer here. Very
0: well, very well said. I agree with
1: you 100%. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, um, I'll watch an old match, an old school match, and you look in the ring and there's you know, Nikolai or John Studd or, you know, whoever it may be. And they had so much charisma. You can't believe they're gone. You know, it, it's really <laughs> like a disconnect. And the, the more you watch it, you go, wow, that ref is gone. The, the announcers are gone, you know. Um, it, it's really it, it, It's really like almost you can't wrap your head around it especially when it's somebody who has off the charts charisma like a superstar Billy Graham or a Dusty Rhodes or a Roddy Piper because there's yep. so much charisma you know when when you would see like Piper versus Snooker you know you, you you're sitting there you go I can't believe these guys are both dead because <laughs> you just can't wrap your head around it so I, it's almost it's almost comforting to know a hundred years from now 500 years from now whatever the case may be people will still enjoy these guys that their sacrifices you know it's a piece of immortality like a movie star it's like a movie star you watch a movie yeah. you watch a movie from uh, decades ago and this one's gone that one's gone but that movie's not gone so you know that's yeah it's it's uh it's kind of like melancholy, but at the same time, it's beautiful because Nikolai Volkov, who was a dear friend, he will live forever, live forever. It's an amazing thing.
0: It is. One of the uh, highlights from the uh, convention I went to is the first time I went to one of these, and I'm in Northern California, so I flew out to New Jersey just to go to this and spent about five days out there, and one of the highlights was uh, – Towards the end of the day, before the wrestling card began, I uh, one of the things I've done since about January is I've taken these old action figures and I've uh, repainted a lot of them with more detail than they originally had. And so I brought um, about a half dozen with me to give away. And so one of those was a Nikolai Volkov that I painted with more detail where I you know put a uh, white laces on his boots and the little blue stripes on his uh, trunks that aren't there on the original figure and, uh, and painted the soles of his boots, white, white. And so I searched out and found uh, Nikolai's son, Andy Weinberg. And so I was able to have a, a real nice five, six minutes uh, talking with Andy where he shared some stories of Nikolai. I got to tell him how much I appreciated his dad and how I'd heard nothing but nice things about him. And uh, it was just a really Really cool experience to be able to to have that and to be able to give him uh, one of these figures of his dad and uh, like I say get some personal stories from him and I'm sure you've uh, you've also spent some time with Andy and, and he plays a heel manager but uh, what a nice guy uh, like his dad as far as my dealings with him
1: oh yeah um, I'll tell you a funny Nikolai story yeah <laughs> we're working. We're working a convention, um, the Hollywood collector's show. And after the convention, we're on a uh, shuttle bus going back to the airport and uh, a woman's sitting on the bus and she's looking at Nikolai and she's looking and looking. And finally she goes, you're Nikolai Volkov, right? (laughs) And and he was like the friendliest guy, you know, very warm, sociable. And yes, very nice to meet you. And they start talking, talking and, uh, Nikolai goes. Uh, I want to introduce you to my partner, the Sheik. And um, the woman looks at the Sheik, she, and she's like staring, and she's looking him up and down. And he's exhausted, and you know he's he's uh, disheveled. <laughs> and uh, she she goes, "You're not the Sheik." And she, he he gets so pissed. <laughs> he's it's like a wrestling, he cuts a wrestling promo. Get out of here, you stupid jabroni. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and she breaks like Olympic records, like running away from him to like the, a different part of the bus, you know. And uh, yeah, yeah, the sheik, the sheik was a character, boy. I'll tell you, um, him and Nikolai were like polar opposites, uh, you know, the sheik was the Sheik was a hard partying guy and Nikolai was straight laced, uh, you know, vegan, um, you know, early to bed, early to rise, it, it was like night and day. It's amazing. They made that whole thing work. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And it's hot. And again, it's hard to believe they're both gone. You
0: know? Definitely. Evan, I, uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on here you're 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 such a wonderful storyteller and the uh the projects that you've shared with the world again i can't thank you enough for all that you've done for wrestling fans and the history of wrestling um if it's not too much trouble i would i would love to have you back uh again on my show to to have you tell some more stories if it, if you're at all having a good time like I am.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I could tell stories from uh, here to tomorrow. I've been following wrestling 50 years, attending 49 years. Um, uh, I'll tell you a quick, uh, John Studd story since we were talking about his act. Sure. Here. So there was an old venue in, uh, in Sunnyside, New York called Sunnyside gardens. And, um, They had no air conditioning, and it was like a 90-degree day in the summer. And they had on, you know, masks, (laughs) the masked executioners. So um, they're they're wrestling Chief J. Strongbow and Billy White Wolf for the uh, WWWF titles. And uh, they go two out of three falls, 45 minutes. And it's like a sauna in there. The fans are dying. And there's Kowalski, like a machine, you know, executioner number one. And Stud, you know, was executioner number two. And uh, Kowalski's just like relentlessly coming at them. like like, You know, like he's superhuman. And um, I tell people all the time, if you really understand pro wrestling and you go back far enough, you have to have to put killer kowalski in the top 10 of all-time heels you just have to it's like uh, you know this guy was on top for 30 years 30 years and um also a dear friend a dear friend and um the funny thing with kowalski he was very very shy it's like if you didn't talk to him, he would just sit there and stare at you. One of the fiercest heels of all time. In real life, he was a very quiet, shy guy. So uh, you never know what what you're getting with these guys because the in-ring persona is not necessarily, you know, what what you're seeing. Uh, bu- you know, behind closed doors. And when you're on the road with these guys, you really get to know them as human beings and they have their quirks and faults and good side. And, uh, you know, the sheik, the, you know, the iron sheik, is troubled as he was with, with the, uh, you know, drug addictions and such. Uh, he was a very warm, good hearted guy also. And, yeah. He'd give you the shirt off his back. Um, I was in his house one day in uh, Georgia, and um, I'll never forget. He he looks at me and he says, Mr. Evan, would you like a cookie? You know, this is is (laughs) one of of the fiercest deals in the history of the business. How surreal it was just hearing that sentence, you know.
0: Oh, man. man. uh,
1: Yeah, man, wrestling, um, Johnny Valiant, who was also an actor, he was on The Sopranos, Um, Johnny Valiant used to say, you put a baseball cap and a pair of sunglasses on an actor, they just blend in on the street, you don't even notice them. He said, wrestlers, wrestlers are larger than life. Wrestlers, yeah, wrestlers are 10 feet tall. You put a wrestler in a wrestling ring, at ten feet tall, Johnny Valiant mm-hmm. used to say, "The wrestling ring is my canvas. It's my canvas." And mm-hmm. if you if you saw the Valiant brothers at their peak in the '70s, you know it was performance art meets you know improvisation meets wrestling. I mean. They they were they were improvisational geniuses and Lou Albano as well. When I see greatest of all time manager list and Albano's not on it, I just go they're too young to have experienced them. Because nobody yeah. could incite a crowd like Lou Albano.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much on this episode. Let me uh let me get back with you right away and uh and have you on again, Evan. I am I'm just Uh, so pleased with uh being able to speak with you so i I thank you again and uh and i will talk to you very soon
1: my pleasure anytime i
0: enjoyed it all right so for legendary wrestling figures this is uh 80s wrestling fan brian with uh evan Ginsberg, such a such a great storyteller thanks everybody and uh take care